0: Hello and welcome to Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller and my guest today is Stephen Asma, who has just published a book entitled On Monsters, An Unnatural History of Our Worst Fears. The book ranges in time from the chimeras of the ancient world to the post-human cyborgs of today and tomorrow. But it's much more than a mere catalogue of the stuff of our nightmares – Stephen is interested in pursuing the content, and crucially the meaning, of those nightmares. So in the ancient world, a monster could be one of nature's playthings, a source of wonder. But to the medieval Christians, monsters had to serve some purpose of an omnipotent deity, however hard that purpose might be to divine. And by the Romantic Age, a monster could serve as a warning of man's hubris in trying to play God through the agency of science. So many monsters, many meanings. When I spoke to Stephen on the phone just before Christmas, I began by asking him to explain why it was so hard to define what exactly a monster is.
1: Yeah, I guess um, there's a sort of traditional view uh, in philosophy, which is my own background, about what concepts mean. And the traditional view is that there should be some sort of defining criteria that all, in this case, all monsters would have. And what I find is not that uh, that doesn't really obtain in the case of monsters. What you have are sort of what, what Wittgenstein would have called a family resemblance. Um, some monsters seem like other monsters in the sense that they you know, they can't be negotiated with, they're irrational. Other monsters seem like a, another group of monsters. And we have this sort of general family of creatures and ideas that sort of passes as monstrous. And in the book, I'm trying to trace uh, what some of those similarities are and what some of the differences are. And when you think of it in that way, it allows you to Focus in on what you might what the ancients thought of as omens or prodigies, let's mm. say um, you know a child is born a conjoined twin, what we can call Siamese twins oftentimes, and so the monster epithet was applied in that case, but in our own day and age, you find that monsters sort of hurled around in the press uh, with regard to psychopaths and um, psycho killers and so the term can function in all these different domains. It could be biological, it could be artistic, it could be uh,
0: even ethical. But one characteristic that you note is its ubiquity. It's, it's impossible really to come up with a society or a time where there hasn't been some notion of the monster. You put it rather elegantly. You say, perhaps the monsters are part of our furnished mind.
1: Yeah, there's increasing evidence from the uh, evolutionary psychologists that the human mind has some furniture in it. Mm. Um, that is probably evolved there as a result of our in- encounter with predators and prey, you know, out on the African savannah. And some theories hold that some of our fears, and particularly like the extreme forms, like phobias, are probably hardwired, mm. um, or at least they're based on some hardwired fears. Like, for example, many, many people, in fact, it seems to be universally the case that people are afraid of spiders. And um, some evolutionary psychologists and biologists suggest that the it was probably advantageous to be worried about uh, poisonous spiders uh, as we evolved, as our, our sort of ancestors evolved, because um, having that kind of dramatic response to creepy crawlies may have uh, led, led one to live live on and procreate. So it could have been actually selected for over time.
0: And monsters simultaneously repel us, but also attract us. That's, that's part of their fascination. We, we can't stop looking, can we? I mean, that's that's made very clear by all the illustrations in your book. It's very hard to look away, and yet there, many of them are repugnant.
1: Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, there is something um, that both, uh, as you say, repels and attracts, and that seems to be one of the more universal uh, aspects of the monstrous. It's sort of, if you look at it in different times, it sort of falls out differently. I think our current day and age is really obsessed with sort of zombies and vampires and uh, serial killers. And mm. I think there's something uh, in the monstrous that, is, that represents our sort of primordial, primitive, sort of pre-civilized self. You know, if we could sort of think about Freud's view of the, of the person... He says, "Well, you've got this—all these sort of uh, dangerous drives and, you know, id-like cravings, um, murderous aggression within you—and you, you learn to sort of basically repress all this in order to be a socialized, functioning human being. And the monster is sort of like a little." You think about the monster movies or, or monster uh, literature, mm. it's a little holiday for the id, you get to go <laughs> and have this uh, bit of freedom where you let your wild things off the chain and they can howl at the moon and then you get them back in and you can go on with your quiet and <laughs> life after that.
0: You, you, get to, you get to play with the, the demon but then you get to put it back in the bottle afterwards.
1: Yeah, that's, that's one way to think about the attraction repulsion. The other uh, way is that oftentimes monsters cross these boundaries, you know, these taxonomic boundaries. Mm-hmm. you Think about the chimera of the ancient world, minotaurs and um, satyrs and uh, the griffin, for example. And it's a combination of maybe two different kinds of animals or it's um, some hybrid creature. And um, there also seems to be something very attractive about that. You know, here's a creature that doesn't fit in our normal sort of cognitive classification system, and it actually creates arousal. They call this sort of cognitive mismatch. Mm. So, there's, Even though it's sort of horrifying, it's also something that you're, you're very curious about and, and attracted to.
0: Is that the same thing as category jamming? I was inter- interested in that concept of, of something that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. And uh, again, we, we can't sort of stop looking at it.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, that's an interesting phrase that they've come up with to describe. You know, we have these categories that we use to make sense out of the world. You know, um, this is a quadruped. This is a you know a, fly, a bird, a, a, a creature that flies. Here's a bird that lives in the water. And what monsters do is that they they ask uh, they sort of represent these blended or strange crossing of these categories, and so it's been called category jamming, where you have, like, uh, well, it's, you know, one thinks about the <laughs> this creature in the Alien series that, um, you know, grabs onto your face and wraps around your mm. neck, and it looks sort of like a spider mixed yes. with a snake, mm. which is <laughs> a pretty horrifying combination <laughs> of phobias. And that is, uh, many, many sort of uh, psychologists and philosophers have said, well, That's one of the things that really arouses intellectual and cognitive interest is Mm. stuff that that crosses these boundaries. So boundary crossers are category jammers.
0: I was also fascinated by what you said about simulated human beings in video games and how we sympathize with them as they become more and more human-like up until a certain point, and then I think it's been called the uncanny valley, where they're they're just a sort of step away from being human, but still not quite human, and then we have a real problem with them.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's a phenomenon that, uh, well, it's we've got more and more data on it now because people are doing empirical research, but it goes back to Freud's idea of the uncanny, which is something that is almost uh, right, but not quite. And mm. you do think about the CGI effects in, in films and in video games where, you know, the thing looks quite human, but then the mouth or the eyes don't quite look, don't quite seem correct. And that gives one a very troubled feeling. It's a, it's a, it's a strange mood that people report. And the psychologists have given this the term uncanny. And I, f- I find that monsters as a general sort of genre in film and in literature and in visual art oftentimes tries to exploit some of that subtle psychological uh, mm. mood you know, I mean, fear is one thing, you can just have somebody chasing you with a chainsaw or something. Yeah. <laughs> but then but then there's the more eerie, sort of David Lynchian kind of experiences and these kind of elicit more of this uncan this more subtle psychological experience that the uncanny
0: I wanted to go to go back, Stephen, briefly to the Middle Ages because I was really interested in what you said about that age and how there was a real quest for the meaning of monsters because when you live in a a monotheistic world where you believe in a creator god then of course every manifestation in that world must have some god-created meaning and i i i I found that um, a a fascinating section of the book how the medieval world tried to reconcile their belief in monsters with with that view of um of a, a world created by god
1: yeah, there was a a whole monst, uh, monsterology, if we can put it that way, before uh, Christianity and they and before a monotheism. And there it wasn't quite as problematic because, as you say, there the belief was um, by the ancient Greeks, for example, that there was all kinds of crazy stuff living in other parts of the world. And it, basically, they they had their own monstrous gods, or uh, you had a sort of polytheistic um, view of theology anyway. So. There weren't sort of all good gods or, or one all good god to reconcile monsters with. But as you say, in the medieval world, you had this transition to monotheism. And here uh, you find the patristic, uh, you know, the church fathers mm. doing backflips trying to figure out, well, how do monsters oh. fit in to this notion of an all good god? Because here you have some heinous creatures, uh, legendary creatures in the medieval world were like the blemiae, which were these uh, headless creatures with their mouths and uh, their eyes sort of in their chest, or the pinocephalus, yeah. which were dog-headed creatures. The belief was that these lived out in uh, Africa and in India. And so the, the idea was, well, and giants was were also sort of a major theme in the medieval world. Why did God uh, either create these things, or at least why did God let them go around doing their nefarious uh, activities, or at least why did he allow them to be so so horrific And you find somebody like uh, Augustine, for example, is arguing that, well, we're not sure whether these monsters um, can be saved, whether they'll be able to go to the you know the beatific vision um with the rest of us, and so I hmm. uh, find him trying to find criteria as to whether these will be able to be capable of redemption and and if the monsters can be redeemed, then we need to go out and uh, spread the good news and and basically take a missionary attitude towards them, whereas many others, I think in the medieval world interpreted them as, well, these are basically the the devil's handiwork, and God allows them to uh, act sort of operate in the world as a way in which to dispense his own divine justice. So mm. devils, demons, witches, and monsters are basically punishing the wicked. And so that was a way to reconcile the monstrous with an all-good God.
0: You, you write about Frankenstein as, as really the, the most famous monster of the last 200 years. And I wondered if you felt he represented a new type of monster that could only have been begotten in the scientific age or does he have does he have antecedents in earlier centuries too
1: yeah that's that's a good question i mean there are uh, antecedents sort of direct ones like the jewish uh, legend of the golem is a creature in which um the rabbi of prague uh in the medieval uh, period creates a, a creature from the from the i believe from mud from the dirt and then mm. um animates it by writing truth on its forehead in Hebrew and this brings it alive and it crashes about and it's designed to to help save and protect Jews living in the ghetto in Prague at the time but it, it goes haywire and mm. can't be controlled and it's too uh, strong for its own good so there are sort of predecessors to the Frankenstein view of sort of animated monster um, but I think that's right there is something very um I think unique to the scientific era when you think about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein because in many ways it represents a lot of the fears that arise after the scientific revolution and thinking about life as being sort of mechanical. Well, you get the right kind of parts together and you jolt it with some electricity. <laughs> and you're going to be able to get the thing alive and run mm-hmm. around. And that was a a sort of operating premise in the, in the scientific era and uh, you have Galvani doing uh, experiments with frogs' legs and uh, electricity, and so, and uh, Descartes and that whole tradition tends to think of the body as a, as a machine. So I think Frankenstein really taps into the romantic kinds of fears about that reductionistic science, you know, mm. and shows us well, here's what can happen if we do think of ourselves too much as just material, mechanical systems. We're going to get, we're going to end up creating things that. Uh, can no longer control and there's fears that we've sort of uh, desacralized, you know, life itself and that kind of thing. And mm. they all come to the fore in Frankenstein.
0: Stephen, I, was, I, I really admired the illustrations of the book, although, as I mentioned, some of them are quite gruesome to look at. And I was also very taken with the fact that you yourself had produced many of the illustrations. And I wondered. Did that allow you to approach the the subject in a in a different in a different sort of way or a different mode of understanding by sitting down with your your pen and ink and actually drawing some of these these creatures these nightmares?
1: Yeah, I I hadn't thought of it that way, but I, I suppose that must be true that uh, my own fascination with monsters is probably based on my you know, my love of visual art and mm. um I've, I've I've sort of been drawing creatures and uh, another thing since I was a kid. And so I suppose that was my early romance with with the monsters. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I guess I think of them visually and I find that that's a way in which to depict some of this category jamming that we were talking about because you can really see, okay, here's why it's sort of part uh, lion and part eagle or whatever in the case of the griffin. And so it's exciting. And I also think there's actually a beautiful, and 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 disturbing pictorial tradition of monsters that um if you look at uh, albrecht durer's uh, etchings you know mm-hmm. the great german etching uh, artist you mm-hmm. find some amazing and hieronymus bosch for example you know there is a wonderful pictorial uh, tradition and i feel that artists have been interested in monsters and the and the sort of underbelly of the human psyche for a long time before the scientists managed mm. to sort of get some traction there.
0: I was also struck by the fact you talked about at one point the fact in in Shakespeare's time, in his audience, you would have a, had a range of responses to the monstrous and the supernatural, which have, would have ranged from entire credulity to outright skepticism. And at the end of the book, you talk about our contemporary uh, playful mania for marvels and monsters. But at the same time, you also talk about the fact that many people in the world, including in, in advanced industrial countries, believe in demonic possession. And I wondered if you felt that in some ways, we haven't actually changed all that much in our attitude to the monstrous.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I, we do tell ourselves this story in the West about kind of like a staircase of progress in which, you know, in the old days, people believed in crazy supernatural stuff. And oh. now after the scientific revolution, and certainly now in our developed prosperous status, we don't have these same kinds of supernatural fears. And and it, it turns out that that's true for maybe a a small portion of the population and i think that may have always been true of a small portion of the population you, one looks back at aristotle for example and then he's quite different from many of his contemporaries so i but i do think there is in fact probably just as much anxiety and fears uh, about the supernatural and the monstrous as there was in the medieval era uh, mm. in the medieval era mm. tend to look back on that era and say well it was a wash in you know, it was the Dark Ages. It was a wash in superstition. I think if you look more carefully at our own culture, you'll find that it's also a wash in superstition, but it's uh, maybe just a little more sophisticated in the way it's uh, presented. There's actually in in the states, you know, in the Bible Belt, there's in fact a huge amount of really literal belief in the power of the devil who mm. possesses people, and that demon possession is real and not some figurative and metaphorical. Sort of phenomenon. Whereas for myself and you know, you know, the professors, <laughs> colleagues of mine, uh, this seems very arcane and, and hard mm. to hard to believe. So you find that the culture is layered almost like a mm. you know the stratum, and uh, you can find um, the most sort of credulous uh, beliefs uh, existing you know in the same city here uh, mm. with some of the most um, scientific and um, rational sort of beliefs. As mm.
0: well. The last thing I wanted to ask you, Stephen, was one thread which runs all the way through the book is the fact that the monster or the monstrous is an embodied phenomenon. And I wondered, as we look at the things which we find frightening today, such as biotech and changing climate, do you think that we may be moving into an era where the monstrous becomes disembodied wholeheartedly for the first time?
1: Yeah, I, that's interesting. I think that's right. With fears about artificial intelligence um, what, what you, and, uh, and the idea of a system that could be monstrous, you do find something, I think, new. And, and I try to trace this uh, at one point in the book where we now think, for example, in the 20th century, that it's not just sort of individual creatures or uh, heinous psychopaths that are monstrous, but we think that whole societies and civilizations and, and, and institutions can actually be monstrous, they can mm. actually ehumanize people to such a degree that they actually turn out monsters. One thinks about uh, some some of the worst kinds of um, penitentiaries, for example, could yes. be monstrous institutions and if that 's true, then it 's sort of a short step from there, I think, to the kind of thing you 're suggesting, which is that uh, you could have a kind of um, I, I don't know, it's sort of diffuse notion of monster. It's not sort of isolatable in any particular individual, but it could be a whole way of uh, thinking, and perhaps even a whole culture could, could embody certain monstrous values. And that's something that sort of gives us a chill, I think, about the
0: future. I was talking to Stephen Asma, whose On Monsters, An Unnatural History of Our Worst Fears, is out now in hardback from Oxford University Press. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of Podularity. If you'd like to subscribe to these podcasts, it's free, quick and easy. Just go to iTunes and type Podularity in the search box. Subscribing is then just a couple of clicks away. I hope you'll join me again soon for another programme. And until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.